Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. Friends, let me encourage you please to turn with me, please, in your Bibles to the 20th chapter of Exodus. We will be continuing our study in just a moment in Exodus chapter 20. And as you're turning in this room, I want to... Uh, Welcome those who are worshiping in the Family Life Center to also turn with us in in your Bibles and those who may be tuning in online as we continue our exploration of the book of Exodus. But as we make our way to the text for today, I just want to take a moment to offer a special prayer, just a a moment that we can share in worship together. So earlier, uh, we have acknowledged in the sanctuary and then uh, by now in the Family Life Center the presence of some guests uh, so I want to add my welcome to our faculty from the Midweek Preschool program and Ansley, under your direction, we're grateful for you. But we want to offer a special prayer uh, for them, but not only for, for them, not only for you, um, our, our faculty from the preschool. Now that we are three weeks into August, are we three weeks? Is it three weeks now? It feels like it's November, but it's now that we're into August, now all of our school systems are underway. Uh, All the counties are in full swing. Even the private schools have now gone back and many of our college students are actually already moving in and preparing for classes if they haven't already begun classes. And I just think that it's important that in the middle of worship, we take an opportunity, take a moment, to pray for our educators, to pray for our teachers. So right now, I'm going to ask you to do something maybe unplanned, unscripted for you. It was planned with me, but I didn't tell you about it. If you are a teacher, we want to say a prayer for you. So I'm going to ask you to stand right where you are. If you teach at any level, if you're preschool and here and also in the Family Life Center, go ahead right now and stand up where you are in elementary, middle school, high school, college. If you are administration, maybe you work, there you go, good, keep standing. If you perhaps work with uh, the custodial staff or cafeteria, if you drive a bus, if you do anything that has now uh, begun to require your added prayers and and extra sleep. I want you to stand right where you are, okay? Thank you. And while you remain standing, it's important for us during these days to pray specifically, not only for your safety and your well-being and your health, but to pray for your ministry. This is a ministry, an extension of what you believe about these children who you are loving and caring for, how you take them seriously, how you pour your life in into them so that their lights come on and their, their lives begin to erupt with possibilities the way God hoped they might have erupted in possibilities. So we're going to take just a moment and pray for you. So remain standing both here at Family Life Center and with the rest of the church body, simply bow with me in prayer. God, in this moment, we lift up these who are standing. We hold them before you. Each of them with with a responsibility so great that we often overlook 
the gravity of what they have before them every, every school day. Because it's more than their subject, it's more than their task for the day, it's more than a checklist they welcome into their company and into their midst your precious children of all ages who are seeking to grow and become something. And our prayer is that you would not only keep these teachers and faculty and administration and, and all those educators or who work in the education system, not only keep them safe, not only give to them the energy and the health and the capacity in a well-rested rhythm to get up every morning and give it every day all they've got. We pray that each morning when you wake them, in some way that only you can pull off, you remind them that they don't do this by themselves. Remind them as you wake them that they are with you because you are up to something in the lives of their students even before they are and that they are joining you with something magnificent that you have in mind. And I pray in every subject area and every encounter that their love for you would be expressed in their ministry of teaching and leading these students. For we offer this in the name of Christ our Lord and all the church together said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. And can we just give these guys a hand for what they do every year? Yes. We are so thankful for you and to you. Uh, so today we continue with our, our study of Exodus. And if you're just joining us, well, you're about 20 weeks too late. But we're going to catch you up in about 45 seconds. Here we go. The first 15 chapters of the book of Exodus have always been about liberation. It's about that experience of being set free from whatever Egypt has enslaved you, whatever it is that has kept you enslaved to the pharaonic mind of producing and, and achieving and, and climbing and, and acquiring. You're set free from those things. And the first 15 chapters demonstrates the journey of the people being set free from Pharaoh and from Egypt. Chapters 16, 17, and 18 make up the second major portion of this book that we've been studying. It describes a wilderness journey, and we've been reflecting upon the reality that anytime we really are set free, we always go through some period of wilderness where we're not quite sure if we really wanted this freedom. Because now the freedom that we've been given means a new way of life, a new rhythm of life, a new kind of orientation to being alive. And there are some days when we'd rather just kind of be back in the familiar ground of Egypt than out here in the unknown, uncharted territory of freedom and wilderness. And yet now we move into the next major section of the book of Exodus after the period of questioning and wandering. Chapter 19, God establishes a covenant and begins the process of consecrating the people. I want you to become my people, he says, and I, and I will be your God, but this is how it's going to shape out. This is what it's going to look like. And we move into the next section, which is chapters 20, 21, 22, and 23, what we refer to as the book of covenant. And right there in the 20th chapter of that major section is where we find the Decalogue, the Ten commandments and what we've done now for eight weeks is we've decided to slow this buggy down and we've been taking each commandment one command at a time 
and drilling down deep to understand what it is that we as Christians may, may glean as we attempt to look at these passages through the interpretive lens of Jesus Christ and his teachings. And we've said thus far that in the Ten Commandments there's a certain kind of anatomy to understanding the Ten Commandments, anatomy, that the first three have something to do with how we are to love God. The last six have something to do with how we are to love our neighbors. And that fourth one right in the middle is the linchpin, the one that links it all together, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. So we have imagined that when we remember the Sabbath and gather in worship, it's in worship that we can remember and maybe even be provoked to love God and to love our neighbor better than we did the week before. And here we are one by one. We find ourselves in chapter 20, verse 15. And this is the reading of the text for today. You shall not steal. Thus ends the reading of the sacred word. It is reliable and it can be trusted today. I want us to talk about just these four words. In Hebrew, it's even shorter. It's just two words. Don't steal. And I want us to talk about what that means. But here's how we're going to talk about it. We're going to move through the rhythm of this conversation together by thinking of three stopping points. I want to talk to you this morning about five-finger discounts, soul-jacking, and theological thievery. Five-finger discounts, soul-jacking, and theological thievery. Will you pray with me for a moment? God, in this moment of prayer, we, we yield ourselves to you. We recognize that, that these will only just be words on a page if you don't do something in us to hear it. So our prayer is this, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts simply be acceptable to you, our rock and our redeemer. We pray that you will now bless the words that proceed from my mouth as we attempt together to interpret your sacred word so that in hearing, we may never be the same. Five-finger discounts. Several years ago, when the boys were very young, uh, Laura, my wife, tells me that uh, she went to, um, went to Knoxville. We were living in Tennessee. She went to Knoxville to the mall. They were just spending some afternoon at the mall and shopping. And, and the boys were so young that Jackson, our youngest, was, was tiny enough to still be in a stroller. And she was pushing him along, and as she pushed him along, she was shopping and looking at things and picking up some stuff that we needed. She's in one of the stores in the mall. She didn't know, she didn't know that Jackson had been reaching out and grabbing the bras from the women's lingerie section off of the racks and stuffing them down beside him in the little stroller that we had him in, or that she had him in. And she, 
He, it was so much fun that he just kept doing it. He kept reaching out and pulling the bras in and stuffing them underneath his little seat where he can't be seen. And Laura has no idea this is going on. And she goes up to the counter and she takes what she has found to purchase. And she said, I'll have this. And she paid for what she had. And then she got near the door and those sensors go off and there's lights and buzzers and like canine units. And they're all like after her. And she's just totally mortified because it looks like here, just stuff this under here right the thing is she didn't know that my son already had perfected the five finger discount <laughs> petty theft where you reach out and grab something that's not yours and I just as we begin talking about do not steal as we begin to talk about this eighth commandment I want to simply paint a picture for you because for me when I hear this text the command to not steal is really something a, about a posture a posture that's as old as Eden itself. The five-finger discount is as old as the Garden of Eden. Do you remember that story where our first parents are told, you can go this far but no further, and if you go this far, there is a tree, and it looks delicious, but you can't eat of it. But our first parents reach across, and they reach out, and I want you to pay attention to the posture. The five-finger discount Edenic version is a stepping across a boundary that, that is off limits and reaching for something that does not belong to you and taking it and consuming it. And for as long as you and I have been self-aware, <laughs> we have been practicing the five-finger discount, the Edenic five-finger discount of reaching across boundaries where we're supposed to be off limits and taking things that do not belong to us. And if we wanted to, if we had the time today, I could articulate all of the ways in which you and I, from the beginning of time, have learned how to step across that which doesn't belong to us and take it as if it did. In big ways and small ways, if I had time this morning, I would talk to you about all the ways in which, in institutional and individual ways, in public and in private, in systemic and in secret, there is within every one of us the capacity to step across the boundary line and take something that does not belong. So the easy answer, the easy target it's to point to all the places that make big news. And so when we hear across the, the evening news, so-and-so has been accused of insider trading, we say, well, now that's stealing. And we say that's stepping across a boundary to take information that does not belong to you, right? Or we look at the headlines like in years past in our recent history, like the Madoff scandal, the, the Bernie Madoff scandal, the big Ponzi scheme, $64 billion defrauded of... Of, of clients, hundreds of clients, and we say to that, well, that, that's a great example. Well, that's, that's certainly stealing. That's reaching across a boundary to take something that doesn't belong to you. And it's so easy to point to the big news because it's way out there and say, now, that's a great example. But then it gets a little bit more fuzzy around April 15th, doesn't it? Oh, come on. I feel you groaning, see? Let's just groan it out a little bit. There's, there's, there's healing in the groaning, okay? 
Because the question is, do you report everything that you actually owe? If you don't, you're stepping across a boundary and you're practicing the five fatigue, taking something that, keeping something that you... Of course, the argument could be made that you know who has the biggest five-finger discount, right? Is Uncle Sam. (laughs) Come on. Stepping across a boundary into your pocket and taking something that doesn't belong to him, right? There is in all of us, and it gets fuzzier the smaller it gets. We do it in big public ways, institutional ways, systemic ways, but we also do it in individual ways, private ways, secret ways. When you drive through the drive-thru at Chick-fil-A, and they give you your change, but it's about $2 too much, because you know they're just jammed over there. There's, There's too much happening at one time, and they're always really good, but what if they give you too much change? Do you Do you give it back? Or do you say, well, if I gave it back, it would delay everybody. Or do you keep it yourself? And then you, you, you'd say, well, thank you. And they say, our pleasure. And, and, and not knowing that their pleasure is your profit, there is a way in which we can practice the five-finger discount and, and not even really, are you an employer? Or do you have people who work for you? I mean, are there people who depend on you? If so, are you paying them? Are you paying them fairly for what they're doing for you? Because of all the examples in the New Testament, this is one that actually gets some real like FaceTime in, in the book. The brother of Jesus, James, he speaks directly to people who, who are overseeing those who work for them. This is what he says. He says, look, the wages you fail to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. So according to James, who, who was like a bunk mate with Jesus, the brother of Jesus, he says, if you, if you defraud, if you are an employer and you're not paying fairly what they have worked for to earn, you have reached across a boundary and you have grabbed that which does not belong to you. And when you do, it's not as if you are just taking it for them but you're keeping it from the God who is watching as well. And you know, you know why we, we do this? It, it's because we're capable of doing this because we are experts at justifying ourselves. We're like, oh yeah, but you know, I've, I've worked so many hours this week. I mean, I put in way more time than I actually get paid, so this ream of paper is going home with me. Or, you know, this... This thing, you fill in the blank. We justify taking what does not belong because, well, I've earned it, and plus nobody's going to miss it. Do you know who is really good at justifying? Zacchaeus. Do you remember the story of Zacchaeus? We typically just think about it as a story of the wee little man who was so short he had to climb a tree so that he could see Jesus when he was walking by, but he's a tax collector, right? Which meant that his occupation, his vocation was the most justified of all because the empire said to him, you, you are to collect taxes from these individuals, but anything that you can extort above what we require from them, you can keep for yourself. So tax collectors legally, legally, with legal justification, would exploit all of their neighbors and they were hated. So yeah, when Jesus comes by, he's up in the tree because he's short, sure, but he's also up in the tree because nobody will make room for him. Who would want to? That guy's a thief, right? 
But Jesus comes to town and says, you know, Zacchaeus, I want to come and eat at your house. So come on down. They go to his house, and, and they, there he is eating with sinners. <laughs> now imagine, he's eating with sinners in his home. And in 1999, there was an interpretation of that story on TV in the Jesus miniseries. Did any of you watch the Jesus miniseries? There was a scene that interpreted the Jesus and Zacchaeus connection. It was the best I've ever seen. There he is in the living room or the little front room there of his little house, and all the disciples are there, but the only reason they're there is because Jesus is there, and they're kind of grumpy. They're kind of angry. I can't believe we're sitting in this house. I can't believe that he's actually having dinner with this guy. And then off to the side, there is this dialogue between Jesus and Zacchaeus. And Zacchaeus says, look at them, teacher. They hate me. I would too. I steal from them. And you know what Jesus said in this interpretation of the story? He said, I steal from them. Jesus said, then stop. Give back what you owe and follow me. He continues eating. What if you are trapped in this place where you know that you practice the five-finger discount. But what, what if it is a problem for you and you realize you've crossed some boundaries, maybe in big ways, institutional ways, or maybe just in small individual ways, but you know you're, you're, you're there and maybe you get some kind of a, I don't know, kind of a, a thrill from it or a, a, some sense of pleasure from it and you don't know how to stop it. Maybe you just do what Jesus says. Just stop. Give back what you owe and follow me. The thing that's interesting about this one verse that we're studying today, do not or you shall not steal, is that the rabbis say that there are two distinct attributes about this eighth commandment that are not the same in all the other nine. One of them is this. It's the only commandment that is open-ended. It doesn't say what not to steal. It doesn't say when not to steal it or who does not steal it from. It just says you shall not steal as if to say... You shall not steal anything, anywhere, anytime, ever. The rabbis also go on to say it's the only command out of all ten commandments that is universally applicable to the other nine commandments. In other words, the other nine commandments really are about the eighth commandment. You are not to worship any other God. Well, if you do, you are stealing from God the one thing that God Deserves. If, if you don't honor your father or mother, you are stealing from them the dignity due them. If you murder someone, you are stealing an innocent life. If you, if you commit adultery, you are stealing the spouse of another. If you covet someone, see, and on and on it goes. It's the, it's the stealing of something else. So if this is true, if the Eighth Commandment is the one commandment that encompasses all the commandments, do you remember what I said a little while ago? I said that all the Ten Commandments, the first part of it's about loving God. The last part of it's about loving people. And if that's true, what would it look like to steal from people and to steal from God? Because this five-finger discount I'm talking about is not limited to plastic stuff or material stuff. You and I can steal from a person's personhood and we can steal from God's own dignity. We can step across a line and take that which does not belong to us, which leads us 
to the second movement of this sermon. Not just five-finger discounts, or five-finger discounts, but also soul-jacking. Now, we all know what carjacking is. The first time I heard the term carjacking uh, was in my hometown, and there was a young man, Jeff Wolf. He was a martial arts teacher, given his life to the study of martial arts and was a great mentor to so many young, uh, young uh, kids growing up. He gave his life. It was great, great young man. And he was driving through East Ridge in Chattanooga, and... Uh, Someone comes up to try to take his car. He does nothing except undo his seatbelt, and the man trying to take his car pulls out a gun and shoots him dead. And in an instant, something is taken away from him that cannot be gotten back. And while we all pray that we would never experience that level of trauma or, or, or tragedy, the truth is you and I have the capacity not only to inflict but to receive a kind of soul-jacking every day of our lives. Can I tell you what it, what it looks like to be soul-jacked? See, the soul, we believe that, that, that every human being, everyone on this campus and everyone on this planet is born with a certain dignity of soul. We believe that with everything in us. That means that in them is the holy presence and action of God. That means God's own image, God's own holiness, God's own beauty is in every person born. Now, we do a great many things to cover up that good reality. From the time we were born, we, we covered up with sin and we covered up with rebellion and woundedness and pain and injury. And, and this is why Thomas Keating it says that sometimes in order to get down to who we really are in Christ, it requires a kind of excavation of the soul where you dig down past the degrees of sediment and pain and injury and sin and rebellion. And this is why the New Testament refers to our salvation as a kind of discovery, like a, like a treasure that's buried in a field and you find it and you just want to sell everything you've got to, to go purchase that field because it's so good. Or like a pearl of great price and a merchant will sail the whole world around in order to find the pearl and when he finds it, he'll sell everything in order to acquire it. Or like Paul says, this treasure that I'm talking about, this soul dignity that I'm talking about, this Christ in you that I'm talking about is like a, a treasure, he says in clay jars. And there's nothing that you did to put it in you. There's nothing you did to acquire it or earn it or achieve it. It was put there because God established you as an expression of God's own identity and, and dignity in the world. You are in the image of God. And while the world did not give that to you and cannot take it away, the world can vandalize it. The world can violate it. Soul jacket. And there are, just like the five-finger discount, all those ways, big ways and small ways, institutional and individual, public and private, just as the five-finger discount can be done in big ways, it can be done in small ways with soul jacking. And one of the most evident ways that we soul jack in the world today is when I think about the human trafficking situation we have. Can I just hit you with a couple of facts about human trafficking? 
Over 40 million victims right now worldwide of human trafficking globally. Of that 40 million people who are involved in human trafficking, 81% are are traded into forced labor. 25% of them are children, 75% of them women and girls. And according to the U.S. Department of Labor, watch this, Human trafficking creates $150 billion in industry with at least, according to the U.S. Department of Labor, at least 139 goods from uh, everyday goods from 75 countries made by forced and child labor. And, and, and God help us. God help us because only God knows how many plastic things and sewn together things are in my closet and your closet as a benefit from this evil uh, institution now of human trafficking. Next, the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children say that one in six who are trafficked are sold into sex trafficking. And do you know one of the hottest cities in the nation, one of the greatest hubs for human trafficking? Atlanta, Georgia. And it all seems so distant. It all seems so, so far away. But there are ways in which we soul jack in such a way as to take something from the dignity of another human being that can't be put back. Also think about last week learning that there are another 1,000 cases in Pennsylvania uh, reported for clergy sex abuse, which causes mine and your Catholic neighbors and friends to groan because, oh, and it causes the, the, the Pope to come out and speak against it this week. Because there are some things that you can do to children that will never be forgotten. You can soul jack them in such a way that it leaves a scar that never goes away. You know what else I think about soul jacking? Because we read this text and we're like, oh, well, I don't steal anything. But we don't know that inside us is an infant stuffing materials down in places where you can't see. And buzzers one day will go off. I think about my strong and courageous sisters in the Me Too movement, the Me Too hashtag, who have come to a place after a lifetime of experiences where they say, you know what, Me Too, I have experienced moments when my dignity was attacked, when my personhood was attacked, and I was reduced to, to some kind of object of somebody else's sexual fantasy or sexual aggression. And I think about that as a man, and I'm aware and reminded in this Me Too movement, by the way, men, I, I just, I'm reminded that there are ways in which you and I can hold up the dignity and the, the value and the worth and the intrinsic beauty of, of our sisters in such a way as to say that's part of what God looks like. But at the same time, with the same set of eyes, we can look at them in a way and speak about them and to them in a way and approach them and do things with or around them in a way that does everything the opposite that soul jacks them, that, that robs them of the dignity of who they are in Christ Jesus. So there are ways, big and small, that we soul jack one another, relationally, intellectually. Students, I'll just talk to our students who are here just for a moment. When you're at school and you hear about a rumor uh, about someone that is, is not true, do you stop the rumor? Or you're at school and you hear a rumor about someone and you know it is true. 
What do you do with the information? Do you pass it on because of the power that it gives you in passing it on? Because I just want you to know that the moment you pass on that rumor or gossip for five seconds, you've stepped across into the part of the garden where you don't belong and you're reaching to take something that they can't get back. We can steal from one another in ways that rob us of our humanhood. We talk a lot about intellectual property. Do you give... Credit where credit is due when you hear a good idea. I remember when I was in, in college, I was sitting in a literature class, an English class, and the professor told us, I want you to break up into these little work groups, and I want you to think about an adjective that describes the day, and the day was kind of like it is outside today. It was a low-hanging kind of fog all across campus. It was drizzly and gray, and he wanted us to come up with some good language, the creative language, and we worked in a little group, and, and I listened as we went around the horn in the circle, and I heard the most boring, dull descriptions of the day. People said, it's uh, wet, it's gray, drizzly. I'm like, come on, we can do I said, how about British? It's British. I'm thinking London fog. I'm thinking Big Ben, the low-hanging kind of cloud of fog. British. Well, the professor comes around to the, to the group, and he comes over to our group and says, well, what did we come up with here? And, and the, the, the guy who just a minute ago said, gray, he, he speaks up, and he goes, uh, British? <laughs> the professor says, oh, that's fantastic. Oh, class, stop for just a minute. Class, I want you, David, say that again. And David's like, British? <laughs> you know? And not once gave a nod, a tip of the hat. I'm like, come, really? <laughs> Do you give credit? So there are ways to rob someone of something that's not material. It's not made of plastic. It's made of something deeper. It's a, it's a, kind, of, a kind of soul jacking. And you know why we do it? Because we forget who we're looking at. Forget who we're looking at. When you look at another mortal, when you look at another carbon-based life form, when you look at another human being, you are looking not at an enemy, not at a threat. You are looking at another expression of the Lord our God. And we forget that when we step across a boundary line and take something that does not belong to us, we are robbing not just them, but we are robbing the God who made them. Do you know in the New Testament there is this great story of one of the first church controversies, right, in, the, in 1 Corinthians, there's this split, this church split. They're kind of, it's a, it's a controversy over should we eat meat at dinner if that meat was purchased at the market and, and, and that market was known to use meat that, that was sacrificed to idols. Because so you could go to the market and you get it at a reduced rate. You can get cheaper meat. It's like a discount meat if it had been used already in the temple for, for, for idol worship. And so clearly those who have been part of the faith forever and ever said, well, no, we can't eat meat that's been sacrificed to an idol because this would be a different God and we can't do that. So no, dietary strictness. But since Christ has come, uh, some of the Greek-speaking Christians began to cause, raise a question, are we really going to baffle? Are we really going to argue about this? Because you say it's been offered to idols, but is there really any other God? I mean, there aren't any other gods, right? There aren't. 
And so since there aren't any other gods, it doesn't matter that this meat was sacrificed to idol because in Christ we are set free. And Paul said, yes, you are. That's right. So it doesn't matter. You can eat it because there are no other gods. There's just one God, and Christ has come to reveal this truth. You can't eat it. But, Paul says, not every one of your sisters and brothers has come to that discovery yet. Not, they're, they're not in the same place where you are spiritually or theologically. And for them to eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols, that's a big deal. It's going to crush them. And he said this. So this weak brother or sister for whom Christ died is destroyed by your knowledge, your freedom, your, your liberty. When you sin against them in this way and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. And what's he saying there? He's saying... You have the capacity to car or to, to soul jack somebody. But he said, but don't, don't forget the reason we are prone to take that which does not belong to us is because we forget who we're looking at. You might rob somebody of the joy of growing in Christ by insisting that they know what you know and rush to meet you where you are. But rather, he says, remember that you're looking at someone for whom Christ died. So to offend them is to offend God. To rob from them is to rob from God. Which leads us to the last movement of our sermon. Not only is, is it true that we practice this posture in life, the five-finger discount, and not only is it true that we soul-jack one another and rob each other of our dignity and worth and reputation in ways that are sometimes hidden, but there are ways that we rob from God. It moves us to the last part of our sermon theological thievery. Perhaps the most daunting thing to discover is that we have been stealing from God. Well, how are you going to steal from God? Because isn't everything God's? Yes, everything is God's. In fact, that's what the psalmist said. The psalmist said uh, that the earth is the Lord's and everything in it, all that is in it, it, it belongs to the Lord. But the Bible is very specific about some things that we end up literally stealing from the Lord. And one of those things is that we practice theological thievery whenever we ignore the vulnerable. The entire Old Testament is crammed with the injunction again and again and again to remember, hey, I set you free, so uh, I brought you out of Egypt when you were slaves, so your job, your role, your identity is to join me in setting the rest of the world free and finding those who are vulnerable and enslaved and helping set them free. So the widow, the orphan, the resident alien, the stranger, all are terms in the Old Testament that symbolize the power of being vulnerable. These are the vulnerable in our society. And when we ignore them, we are ignoring God. The brother of Jesus, James, puts it this way. He says, religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this to care for widows and orphans in their distress, and to, to leave oneself unstained, keep oneself unstained by the world. If we were to read the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew 25, we hear Jesus saying, look, at the end of the day, there's going to be a lot of people really surprised about how this whole thing shakes out. That's a paraphrase, by the way. <laughs> but he says, look, I was hungry and you didn't feed me. And I was thirsty, and you didn't give me a drink. And I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me in. I was sick and in prison, and you did not come and care for me. And then you will say to me, but Lord, when did we see you in those conditions? If we had seen you in those conditions, we certainly would have taken care of you. And then he will say, 
when you ignored the least of these, when you ignored the vulnerable among you, you're ignoring me. So when we keep our love and compassion and grace from those who are vulnerable, we are stepping across a line and keeping that which does not belong to us. We are actually ignoring God in those moments. Theological thievery. Another way is, is just downright explicit. In the book of Malachi, um, we talk about this. The second way that we uh, practice theological thievery is by withholding our tithes and offerings. The gospel, or the, 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 gospel, the gospel of Malachi. In the gospel of Malachi in the Old Testament, this is what we hear. Will anyone rob God? Yet you are robbing me. <laughs> but you say, how are, we, how are we robbing you? In your tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse so that there may be food in my house, and thus put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. See if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you an overflowing blessing. And you're like, okay, well, Sean, you're talking tithes. That's the Old Testament, right? Yeah, but I'm, I'm not finished. Because there was a 10% required tithe, but that wasn't all. There was the offerings as well which is two or three more uh, tithes that take place like every other year and sometimes twice a year. When all said, you bundle it together, it's not really 10% that was required of the Old Testament uh, brothers and sisters. Um, it was more like 28 to 30% required. You're like, well, hang on though. But so you're saying that that's Old Testament, right? Didn't Jesus come to set us free from the law? Um, yeah. But Jesus said with his own words, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. And so when you hear things like, do not murder, I say to you, uh, don't be angry. In other words, I'm going to extend more fully what you heard in the Old Testament. When you hear things like, don't commit adultery, I'm going to extend it by saying, yeah, but don't lust upon someone because you're still participating in that, that sin even if you haven't finished it, right? So in the same way, wouldn't he do the same? with the teachings about giving. So there was, yeah, 28, 30% required. So Jesus says, you know what? If you have two coats and someone has no coat, give them your coat. Now listen, I didn't go to Georgia Tech. We didn't do a lot of math in seminary, but that's about 50%, right? Um, the, the widow who had two mites, two copper coins, gave both copper coins, and again, uh, our treasurer is here on the front row. Bob, you'll have to check my math, but that's 100%. 100%, right? So Jesus doesn't diminish the old. He expands it. And what's the point? The point is that God doesn't need your money. The point is that God doesn't want your money. Our God is the one who this, the, the psalmist described this way. Our God is the one who has a cattle on a thousand hills. He doesn't need anything from you. You know what he wants from you? is trust, trust. That 10% is, well, that leaves you 90% to live on. And the reason my family tithes 10% of our gross together, the reason that we tithe is because we need some sacrifice in our lives to put us in a place where from time to time it's uncomfortable. Is this gonna work? Will this come together? Why? So that we can lean on him and see how he brings it all together. If you don't create a space in which you, you depend on the Lord to provide for you, then you have stolen, not money from him, but stolen his title as the great provider for you. 
You've stolen the trust that is meant to go to him and you've put it in yourself. So yeah, there are ways that we practice theological thievery. And the last way may be the most potent, maybe the most uh, difficult. We steal from God in our worship. In our worship. And I'm not talking just about Sunday morning, although we could make that argument. We, I could say that sometimes we steal from God when we get here and aren't really here. Because sometimes we can show up for worship and really not ever show up for worship. And our mind is in a thousand different places or on our phone. And not really show up, but I, my child was sick this week and now she is better. We couldn't pay this bill, but now we could. I lost the job, but then I got a new offer. That argument that we had, I didn't think it could reconcile, but it was, peace was made we ought to show up for worship and at the top of our voices sing how great is our God how great you are so I could make the argument that that in worship we rob from God the praise that's due him and the adoration the gratitude that's due him but that's not even really what I'm talking about today you know what I'm talking about I'm talking about a lifestyle of worship we sometimes rob God of the worship in our lifetime that throughout our lives, we, we, we worship that which we value. That's what worship means. It means to ascribe worth or value or dignity or esteem to something important to you. Is there anything that you esteem more greatly than you esteem God? On the surface, we might say no, but here are a couple of truth tellers. The truth tellers that tell us who our God really is, there are two, and I've said it before and I keep on saying it. Two truth tellers are our calendar and our checkbook. Take a look at your calendar and your checkbook because they reveal where your priorities are. Is your faith in God, your love of God, your adoration of God anywhere reflected in your calendar or your checkbook? So what do we do about all this? See, so we can steal from God, we can steal from each other, we can steal from ourselves. So what do we do? Maybe this. Do you remember I started this sermon like three days ago, <laughs> with the idea that stealing is about a posture. Stealing is about reaching across in the garden to a place where you don't belong and taking that which doesn't belong to you. What if the remedy is found in another garden where we find our Lord not reaching and taking, but bending and pouring out the garden of Gethsemane where he says, if, if, if this cup can pass from me, great. If not, thy will be done. And he pours out his rights and pours out his passion and surrenders his life. The remedy to a life of stealing, a life of the five-finger discount, a life of soul-jacking, of theological thievery, the remedy is the poured-out life. So maybe somebody today needs to pray something like that. Maybe we need to pray something like, Lord, Lord, I don't know why it is, but I do. I do literally practice the five-figure discount. I take things that do not belong to me, and in big ways maybe, or maybe in small ways multiple times over, and I don't want to anymore. Or maybe I, I realize that I have been one who has soul-jacked somebody else. I've robbed somebody of their dignity, their, their, their reputation. I have vandalized their value that you gave them. And I repent and I am sorry. I, I don't want to soul-jack any longer. 
Or maybe, Lord, that I have been practicing theological thievery. Maybe, Lord, maybe I have been taking from you by ignoring the vulnerable that you put in my life. Maybe I've been taking from you by not choosing a life of sacrifice where I must require your help to live and I've kept my tithes and my offerings from you. Or maybe, maybe, Lord, I, I have chosen to worship something else because I, even though I say it with my mouth, I do value other things more than you because that's where I spend my time, that's where I spend my money, that's where I pour out my life, and I want that to change. If you pray that, God forgives, and God allows you to begin again. And perhaps that's what you need to do today. Would you bow with me? God, we do lift up this prayer. For there are those gathered here among us, and, and in each one of us there is the capacity, the desire to take that which doesn't belong to us, even if it's in hidden ways, unseen ways. Our prayer today, as we all attempt to not violate the Eighth Commandment, our, our attempt today is that you would show us how to, instead of grabbing and reaching and taking and consuming, we might be be able to say yes to a rhythm of relinquishing, of laying down our lives, of seeing one another with the intrinsic value that, that you created one another uh, to be. Show us this day how to honor you and to keep this commandment in every conceivable, conceivable fashion. We pray in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. <laughs>